Well, good morning, church. So good to, uh, to be together. It's going to be a great day, isn't it? You know it's a great day when it starts with Jesus and, uh, and all of what this day might uh, hold for you. Um, I uh, grew up on the prairies, as most of you know, that I grew up here in Edmonton and then spent about 16, 17 years uh, living in Calgary and then just outside of Ottawa. And I can say even growing up that I never really had a chance to get exposed to much boating or sailing or those kind of water sports. I think the last boat trip that my dad ever took was when he came from Europe to, uh, to Canada, landing in Quebec City in the late 1940s. But there are a few things that I know about sailing, and that is that when you're planning a trip, you need to be thinking ahead to what you'll do when a storm might come up or another emergency requires you to find a safe place. Sailors know that in order to keep a safe harbor within easy reach, because you never know um, when a storm will suddenly start tracking your way, and you know that it would be dangerous just to try to ride out this storm. A safe harbor is just that, a safe place protected by a break wall that will protect you and your boat during bad weather and the resulting raging seas. We all need safe harbors, safe spaces and places, places to run to when we face the storms of life. Life can and often is very hard, and as followers of Jesus, we're not in any way immune. We face trouble ourselves. We discover an unusual mass, we're let go from a job, uh, a relationship struggles and we're experiencing stress and conflict and the emotional and mental and financial and physical challenges that we might face are very real. Especially now, everything seems to be magnified during COVID. Today we continue to journey through the life of David seeking to discover the everyday faith that he lived. David knew just where to go when he needed a safe place. The question is, do we? And so as we think about the life of David again this morning, the more I read about David in First and Second Samuel, the more I think that it would make uh, for a great movie, wouldn't it? There's just some great content here. It would probably be, have to be rated like 14A or even R, um, simply because of like the violent content and, you know, the adult content that, uh, that we'll come to uh, eventually. Um, it actually got me thinking, maybe there already is a movie about the life of David. And so what do you do when you don't know an answer to something? You Google it, exactly, right? That was the interactive part, the only interactive part you can know. Um, but it got me, uh, uh, and so wouldn't you know it, I, I did a search, and there is a movie called, not surprisingly, King David. Um, It was produced in 1985. It was released. Unfortunately, it sounds like it was a bit of a box office bust. And Rotten Tomatoes only gave it 8% on the the tomato meter. Um, Now, the audience score was, I think, 42% or something like that. So it might not be all that bad. Um, And it does actually feature a very young uh, Richard Greer. So, you know, it has that going for it, which is nice. But I haven't watched it yet, so I can't really recommend it. Anyway... What we've been doing about the life of David, often we've been taking these very broad brush strokes 
And uh, so I'd really encourage you to, to read these full chapters yourselves. We started in chapter 16. We've, we focused on 17. La- last week alone, Pastor Ken covered chapters 18, 19, and 20. Today I'll look at 21 and 22. And next week, Pastor Adam will look at, at uh, 23 and 24. And so um, it's hard to dive into a lot of the detail that's there. Um, but hopefully we can pull some things out that uh, are helpful to us. But uh, just to recap very, very quickly, we've seen uh, Samuel secretly anoint David as the next king of Israel, even though Saul was still king. We've seen how David was then called into Saul's service and how he could just play the liar to bring relief to Saul's troubled spirit. We've seen God use David to remove Goliath uh, for good. And uh, this caught the attention of Saul, who then gave David a high rank in his military. And it was really there where his trouble started. He was very successful as a military leader. But instead of cheering David on, Saul became angry and jealous and suspicious and even paranoid. And we saw last week how David's friendship with Jonathan, who was Saul's son, was an absolute blessing and a lifeline for David. Because David, by this point now, he actually was afraid of Saul and for good reason. You think about how things have changed, the ups and downs of life, from David feeling the elation of the victory there in the Valley of Elah, to now feeling completely helpless and hopeless. But throughout chapters 18, 19, and 20, we also saw that Saul was afraid of David. And he was afraid of David's success. He was afraid of David because he saw that the Lord was with David. And it didn't take long for Saul then to totally lose it. You might say he kind of went a little nuts. He was certifiably crazy. So much so that he tried to kill David, not once, but multiple times. Sometimes he took matters into his own hands. He threw a spear at, uh, at David, uh, not once, but at least three times. Other times, he would send David out to the front lines of battle, hoping that the Philistines would do his dirty work, you know? The, 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 the more uh, conflict and war he encounters, the less likely he is to survive. And so let's hope that that'll put an end to his life there. But it's such a complicated relationship, because even by this time, Saul had even become David's father-in-law, because... Uh, his daughter, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And you remember that, you may remember that Saul um, had promised um, his daughter in marriage to whoever could take care of Goliath. And in chapter 18, verse 28 to 30, the writer sums up the situation this way. It says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, So when he realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. And so because of Saul's anger and jealousy, his fear that David would be more popular than him, his fear that he would lose the throne to David, he was bent on having him killed or or killing him himself if he had to. So David had to run, leaving his wife, leaving his friendship with Jonathan, all because Saul wanted him dead. By the way, have you noticed how pride and ego will often lead to jealousy and anger? 
And how jealousy and anger will fuel fear, often an irrational fear. And if you don't nip some of those things in the bud, if you don't check your own emotions, you can easily be led down into dark places. And it's possible that you end up doing something really stupid and harmful. I bet we can all think of real-life events where this is exactly what happened. You only need to turn on the TV or read the news to discover that this happens every day. An employee is disgruntled because he didn't get the promotion he thought he should. And so he returns uh, seeking to harm the person that got the promotion and usually the boss who made the decision. Or a jealous boyfriend. Or another competitor. You remember the story of Tanya Harding? Google's your best friend if you don't. Whenever we start to feel envious and have jealous thoughts ourselves, we absolutely have to stop and ask, why? What is going on inside of me? Why am I so triggered by this? And we'll probably discover the root is pride. Our ego is hurt, and so we may lash out at others. And sometimes, like David, we're on the receiving end of someone else's anger. And then we need to be so careful and so wise. And sometimes the answer is to get away and to find a safe place like David did. And so as we come to chapter 21, we find David seeking a safe place. He runs off to a place called Nob, which is about four kilometers southeast of Gibeah, which is the home uh, of Saul. And there he goes to the tabernacle or the sanctuary and meets with the priest named Ahimelech. And since David essentially ran for his life, it appears that he didn't plan very well for this trip. He left with no food and no weapons, but David has some insider information, so he knew that the best place, the safest place, the place where he could find some help and refuge, would be, in fact, the sanctuary. And the text says that Ahimelech, this is the priest, trembled when he saw him, saw David. Because Ahimelech was actually surprised that David is alone. Because normally he would have an entourage with him. He would have other warriors with him. And I think it's safe to assume that there was maybe something about the way that David looked this day. He probably was a little worse for wear. Maybe a little disheveled. After all, he was a fugitive on the run. Quite simply, Ahimelech knew that something was wrong. And so he was afraid and he trembled. Now, what David does next is surprising. And if you know this story, you maybe have often wondered, what is really going on here? Because David makes up a story. He flat out lies. Now, some commentators try to sanitize it a little bit, perhaps thinking that, you know, the hero of the story should never jeopardize their character with lying. And I tend to side with those who call it what it is. It's a misleading, fabricated, made-up story. At least part of it. I mean, maybe there's some element of truth, but certainly isn't the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if there was any truth to it, he completely twisted it. Now, just think about it. Put yourself in David's shoes. His life is in danger. He's desperate, and he's on the run. Now, that in no way justifies his actions at all. But I think it helps to explain them. I mean, how else would you explain when you know what is happening in his life at this point, the king himself is out to get him, his life is in danger, that he would then turn around and say, well, that very king has sent me on a private matter. 
You know, it's like he's saying, you know, listen to him, like it's a secret mission. It's so secret that I can't tell you all the details. And, you know, I'm going to meet up with my men later on. So do you have any food that I can have? Some bread? You know, five loaves would be good because, you know, I got those other guys, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Or just give me whatever you can find. David is smart. He's wise. And he knows that if he goes to the sanctuary, it's very likely that he will find some bread there. Because he understood it uh, back in Leviticus 24, if you take some time to read it for yourself, that God gave specific instructions about the bread in the tabernacle. And not just the bread in the tabernacle, but even how to bake the bread there. And how to take 12 loaves and set them before the Lord. And this bread was to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath. And then when the next Sabbath came around, the bread that had been sitting out all week was exchanged with the fresh, hot bread. But only the priests then were able to eat the week-old bread. (laughs) Lucky guys. And so David knows that there should be bread in the sanctuary. And that's what he goes in search of. Now, the back and forth between David and the priest Ahimelech is, is interesting, but I'm not going to get into the detail here just for the sake of time. The bottom line is, is that David ends up getting the bread, and Ahimelech, while he's concerned about the purity of David's men, he makes an exception to the rule and gives David the bread that he's looking for. Now, if you're following along in the text, verse 7 is a bit of an aside, but it's an important piece of information. Because we're told there that David and Ahimelech are not alone in the sanctuary that day. One of Saul's servants was there lurking in the shadows as well. And so the plot thickens. And he's described there as the chief shepherd of Saul, and his name was Doeg the Edomite. This chief shepherd could also mean mighty one or even violent one. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. So David has his food, but he doesn't have a weapon. He had nothing to protect himself with. And again, he probably ran away with only the shirt on his back. No time to pack an overnight bag or grab a sword. But again, David probably knows that there's also a sword there in the sanctuary, a special sword. And so he asks, well, do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. That's in verse 8. So David keeps this ruse going. He keeps coming back to this story that he made up about this secret mission that Saul sent him on and uh, uses that kind of as leverage to get what, what, he, what he wants. And Ahimelech tells him, I only have the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. No kidding. That sword? (laughs) I wonder if David acted surprised. I I think, because I think that he would have had some idea that this particular sword was there. That he, he, you know, after he had killed Goliath, he took Goliath's own sword, he cut off his head, I know it's, it's violent and, 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 and all of that, but he kept it in his own tent, the sword, not Goliath's body parts. <laughs> but somehow, and we don't know how, uh, this sword ends up in the sanctuary. But I suspect that David would likely have known that that's where it was being kept. 
right? Maybe it was there as like in a, in a trophy case out in the, in the, in the front part of the, of, the, of the tabernacle that when everybody came in, it was like a constant reminder of God's deliverance in the valley of Elah. And Ahimelech offers it to David and he takes it and he says, there's nothing like it, give it to me. I love that line. There's nothing like it, give it to me. I think that would preach all on its own. But anyways, David now has food and he has a weapon. He's set and so he's off running from Saul again. And his next stop is Gath, which is uh, crazy when you think about it because this is now enemy territory. Uh, This is the headquarters of the Philistine army. I mean, how desperate do you have to be to, to find safety in enemy territory? There's an interesting event that takes place there. David then, to kind of get out of the pickle that he then found himself in, he pretends to be insane, which ultimately probably saves his life. In chapter 22, he leaves Gath and he ends up in the cave of Adullam. Here, he rendezvous with his family who had heard that he was there. And somehow he manages to gather about 400 soldiers that are now going to be kind of on his side. And so he's got a bit of a a military, military escort with him. But clearly in all of this, David is on the run from Saul. And I don't think David left a travel itinerary with with his wife. You know, I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go there. Uh, He didn't leave anything with Jonathan telling where he was. He was basically making it up on on the fly. He was just making it up as he goes. But he is seeking a safe place to stay. A safe space. A sanctuary to seek refuge in. And so the question is, When the storms of life come and hit us hard, where do we run for shelter? Where do we go seeking a safe space? Now, before we consider where David went and how we might look for some of these similar safe spaces and places today, let me just quickly hit on a few things that I think that this text raises that are important for us just to put in the back of our minds to think about. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, just a few quick mentions here. I had no better way to say it than other a few quick hits here. Because when studying these Old Testament narratives, we need to do so keeping in mind what Paul wrote in Romans 15.4. He says this there. Such things, so things such as what we're studying this morning, were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. Okay? So there's something for us then to learn from this text. And Paul goes on to say, And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And that's what I hope, that's what we do on Sunday. I hope that you find hope and encouragement when we look at the Scriptures because we're all waiting patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And so what does the text, what does the scripture teach us, especially about God? Well, let me say a few things. One is, it tells, it reminds us about God's grace and forgiveness. Now, uh, let's think about the fact that David certainly lies to Ahimelech. He made up the story about this king's secret mission. And I don't think that he had men that he was planning to meet up with either. Now, eventually he does, but I believe that kind of happened maybe, you know, much later and maybe more by chance than by plan. Clearly, this was David trying to deceive uh, Ahimelech to get what he wanted. And what we learn from the life of David is not his morality, not that he was some good, nice guy, but that his is a life lived out before God that we learn from his experience of and witness to God. And above all, we learn that he's not perfect. 
And when his back is up against the wall, he does things that he himself might look back later on and say, I was not proud of that. I wish I hadn't done that. Now, before we think that, well, you know, he was under so much pressure, cut him some slack. I mean, maybe he did it to protect the priest. Maybe, maybe you know, the less Ahimelech knows, the better off he's going to be. Or maybe he didn't trust Ahimelech. So do you blame him for not telling him the truth? And maybe we too are tempted to think that a difficult situation warrants a little lie. And when put between the proverbial rock and a hard place, what do we do? Well, I want to say this, that we should always be people of truth. But we shouldn't be so smug to think that we ourselves might not do exactly what David did when we're backed up against the wall. But it, and here's the catch. When we do it, we don't congratulate ourselves for a lie well done. No, we fall on our knees before God in repentance and ask for his forgiveness, and then we get up to walk and live another day walking in his grace. Eugene Peterson in Leap Over a Wall, he writes this. He says, the story of David isn't set before us as a moral model to copy. David isn't a person whose actions were inspired to imitate. In the company of David, we don't feel inadequate because we know we could never do it that well. Just the opposite. In the company of David, we find someone who does it as badly as or worse than we do, but who in the process doesn't quit, doesn't withdraw from God. David's isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. I love that. It's not an ideal life but it's an actual life. And then he adds this. He says, we read David to cultivate a sense of reality for a true life, an honest life, a God-aware and God-responsive life. And so we walk out our faith every day in acknowledgement that we, like David, will stumble and fall and that we have God's grace and his forgiveness uh, to back us up. Um, I said quick hits, that wasn't that quick. So let me hit a few more really fast. God's provision and protection, I think, is also here. I mean, just the fact that David went to the sanctuary um, defenseless and hungry and comes away with, with a weapon and bread that God provided for him. Think about that. God's provision and protection. Don't take it for granted. We have what we have because God provides it for us. And lastly, I just want to say this. God is good. God is good, full stop. I might be tempted to say God is good and people are crazy. And I think I just quoted another country song. Not a very good one, so don't go looking for it and please no emails. But people are, some people are bad. Like we just have to acknowledge that. There are evil people that exist in the world. They just, they're just there. But that does not take away from the fact that God is good. Evil people have no problem harming others if it will advance themselves in some way. I mentioned earlier about Doeg the Edomite was in the sanctuary overhearing what, uh, what David and Ahimelech were talking about. We're not even sure why he was there, but the text says that he was detained before the Lord. 
It was almost like he had a time out, <laughs> some punishment there that he needed to, you know, do some penance for or something. And what strikes me about Doeg is that he may very well have been a religious person, but he wasn't a spiritual one. He wasn't a faith-filled one. And for him, religion was something that simply would advance his political career. He is, if you put it in these terms, a villain in every sense of the term. And later in chapter 22, he uses the information he got in the sanctuary. He shares it with Saul. And of course, this gets Ahimelech in trouble with Saul. And Saul ultimately orders the guards to kill Ahimelech and his family. Oh, and you might as well kill the other 85 priests too. Which just again shows even how irrational Saul was. And when Saul's officials refuse to carry out this tragic order, guess who steps up and takes it on himself? Doeg. And he just takes it over the top and ends up massacring the whole town. I mean, these are troubling, difficult, horrific times that David lived in. But it's a reminder, I think, to us that just because some people are bad, some people are evil, God is still good. And if you go to Psalm 52, they re- uh, Cheryl referenced it in the children's spotlight. Really read it. It's, I think it's 13 verses um, or, or thereabouts. And, and it's all about David's response to Doeg. You want an honest, just frustrated, angry David? Read that and then see how he ends it with just going, but I still trust in God because God is good. And so all of this begs the question, where do we run to when we need a safe place? Where do we find safe spaces and places? Because you and I are not immune from trouble. Trouble is inevitable. Jesus even said, in this world you will have trouble. And so the test of our faith is not whether or not we have troubles, but ultimately what we do in response to them. Eugene Peterson puts these safe spaces and places into the context of sanctuary, and he writes this. He says, David runs to Ahimelech's sanctuary at Nob for protection, and then he finds himself immersed in holiness. A sanctuary is a place for paying attention to God, a place where the truth of God is preserved and honored, a place for remembering the events in which God has been clearly active and powerful. David arrives at the sanctuary of Nob, desperate, running for his life. At the moment, probably the only thing he has on his mind is saving his physical life. But in fact, he needs much more. He needs help in maintaining a God-attentive life, living out the life of anointing and service and prayer that has been God-activated in him. Okay, A, A sanctuary is a holy place. A sanctuary is a safe place a place of protection from the storms of life that ultimately help us maintain a God-attentive life. And so let me just give you some examples, some places that we can enter into, or maybe we can be responsible for even creating these safe places for others. But the obvious one in which where we find sanctuary is when we run to God. We turn to Him right? Because what we have a tendency to do is that when things are going well in our lives, we depend on ourselves. We don't really need God. But then when we feel helpless and hopeless, what do we do? 
And the Bible repeatedly describes God as a place of refuge. I love how David sang these words at the end of 2 Samuel 22. We're getting towards the latter part of his life. And he's able to say this. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my Savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord. You see, he's running to God, who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. I mean, that was the testimony of his life. And so again, when we're in trouble is our first instinct to run to God. Do we seek Him? Do we seek His help? I loved it. I tried to capture the words that, that we sang in, in um, um, one of the songs. I can't even remember now which one, but it, the, the line was just, you know, I needed rescue. My sin was heavy. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. You know, it was such a perfect tie-in to this that we run to God for safety, for security. And we run to God through the practice of prayer. I mean, it's obvious, right? We saw that in David's life. We run to God through the practice of Scripture reading. When we feel weak and in danger, maybe a little defenseless, we go to His Word and somehow we're uniquely strengthened and equipped to face another day. Or or we practice Sabbath. Right? This is not just another day to do what you always do. Sabbath is, whenever you you observe it, but Sunday is a great place to start. Start it with God. Start it with, 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 with church, and, and, and then allow the rest of your day to carry out in such a way that you are God-attentive, that you invite God into the, the visits with friends or the, 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 the activities that you do, and be aware of, of God's presence in all things. That's what we're talking about, being a, a safe and sacred place. And so there's running to God, there's running to the church. I honestly believe the church um, can and should be these safe places, a place where we can acknowledge our sin, but we seek help and accountability to live this life. The church is a place where we gather for, for worship, where together we're in awe and reverence and we submit to God in, in worship and recognize that there's strength in numbers, that we're not the only one. Remember when, when Elijah had this great victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, and then he's in the cave, and he's all alone, and he's despondent, so he's isolated and separated from everyone else, and all he can think of is, I'm the only one of your prophets left. It surely is that way. And then just a few verses later, God reminds us, listen, Elijah, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 others. And when we gather in community like this, we can look around. I may not know that person. We may vote differently. Uh, we may think about COVID differently, whatever. But this we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're here to worship Him. There's strength in numbers. Well, we can run to creation. When you're out gardening, or you go to a park and walk in the park, or you go to the mountains, or you're at the beach and you watch the awesome power of the waves. There's, in a sense, something holy in that we acknowledge the presence and the power of God in these places. We pay attention to God in all areas of our lives. And certainly our families and our homes need to be places of refuge. 
that our homes and our families are a part and should be a safe place for everyone. Because a safe family supports and encourages each other, just as David's family showed up at the cave of Adullam when they heard that David was there. Our homes should be places of refuge, a place where we retreat from the troubles of the world when we've had a hard, stressful day at work where we can just come home and relax and be us. And so make every effort to create a safe place at home, eating meals together, enjoying that, having fun together, hanging out together, pursuing God together. And lastly, I think we can find sanctuary in relationships where we turn to others for a spiritual perspective, when we're willing to speak the truth in love, and we're quick to forgive others when they admit their sin. This week, I was on a Zoom call with eight other pastors and ministry leaders, and we are just kind of getting started. And, and I knew all of them, not uh, all well, of course, but um, one person actually made a really inappropriate comment. It was a little bit shocking. And I remember just going, did he just say that? Like this is weird, but it was that awkward Zoom moment. Like, you don't just sort of like pounce on that um, in, in this context. But just a few hours later, he emailed all of the participants, and this is what he wrote. He said, I used a deeply offensive term today that I should have acknowledged, confessed, and repented of immediately with you all. Someone reached out to me in grace to help me become aware of it. I deeply apologize for using the offensive term. As soon as I said it, I felt a check in my spirit and I realized what I had done, but I did not follow that up with an apology to everyone for that. I am really sorry. I cannot even remember ever having used that term. Totally surprised me, but I should immediately have gone to repentance and reconciliation over it. Thanks for being the voice of the Holy Spirit that has helped me see how far my soul is from who I already am in my spirit in Jesus. What a humble confession. And you can imagine what happened then because person after person, this was replied all, just responded with love and forgiveness and grace was extended. And friends, that's what we provide for one another. A safe place to fail and a loving place to make it right. And what we always have to remember is that this event in the life of David reminds us that God is faithful. He is at work, even in the storms, even in the trouble, God keeps his promises. And that is what we're going to continue to see as we journey along in 1 Samuel and uh, the life of David, everyday faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And again, like Paul, we're reminded that these scriptures are intended to teach us. They're intended to give us encouragement and hope. And I pray, Father, that that's exactly what your Spirit did today. That you would take these feeble words and press them deep into our hearts. That we would be reminded about who you are and who we are. And that we would seek to just walk out our faith every day. And when we need a safe place we know that we can run to you, that we can run to others in the church, that we can go out and enjoy all of what you have created. And that when we can sit at home and share honestly about the things that we're struggling with and have great conversation, always paying attention to God in our midst. And those relationships that we might have, whether it's a deep spiritual friendship, whether it's a triad, whether it's a small group, that we would get together and just be able to acknowledge 
God, that you are good, that you are faithful, and you keep your promises. And so, Father, help us to keep on and to live out our faith every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He's the God that keeps his promises. He's